Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Carrie Lynn McClintock is back in prison as the federal government and Correctional Service Canada backed down from the decision to move eight-year-old Tory Stafford's murderer to an Aboriginal healing lodge in Saskatchewan. She's back where she belongs. Unfortunately, she's in medium security when she should be in maximum. I spoke with Scott Newark about that, former Alberta prosecutor and former senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. When I was speaking with a Correctional Service Canada spokesperson, um, how did, Scott, how did they re- refer to you and me and everybody else who isn't in prison? Well, were we non-convicted offenders residing in the community? That's it. That's it. We were non-convicted offenders. <laughs> Living in the community, we were just we were we were already offenders. We just hadn't been convicted yet. Well, it does sort of give you an insight into perspective, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, this was a person speaking for Correctional Service Canada and speaking to every single Canadian, saying you are just a non-convicted individual living in the community. Yeah. My God, it's the reason why. Uh Keeping an eye on what's going on is so important, and why, in the McClintock case, as you describe, uh, you know, the, I think the entire nation owes uh, thanks to the uh, Stafford family uh, for, for deciding when they got the information about what had happened, which they were never told about originally, uh, decided to step up and speak out and uh, expose the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because otherwise, it would have been business as usual. Because they do not expect interference. Well, not only that, uh, Roy, but that, that's one of the things that I think is really important and sometimes gets overlooked is, um, y- you know, it, it is, in, in my view, entirely appropriate that victims be shown the respect by being given the information and being allowed to have a voice, not a veto, but a voice on certain kinds of decisions in relation to the offenders that have affected them. Uh, but it's not just their them as victims that benefit from that. It's all of us as a society, because that's how we gain the insights into what is actually going on inside Correctional Services of Canada. Because contrary to what Minister, Public Safety Minister Goodale was telling everybody, and still is, that, oh yeah, we always tell everybody when an offender is transferred. No, they don't. Okay? The Stafford family learned about it because um, it, like six months after she was transferred to this healing lodge, she decided that wasn't good enough and she wanted uh, day passes. That's how they learned about it. And, I mean, it's, it's reflected again in the news uh, uh, just a couple of days ago that the, uh, the uh, child abductor, Randall Hopley, remember the case from years ago where he abducted the little four-year-old boy, um, and he's actually now been released. He was designated as a long-term offender, and he's been released into Vancouver, which, by the way, Correctional Service of Canada isn't bothering to use electronic monitoring on this guy. Uh, but the family, the victim's family, was never notified. Contrary to what Minister Goodell says, now look, I'm just starting to dig into this case, and it may be, you know, I don't know, maybe the victim's family didn't register, but um, this sense that we should just think everything is okay is really not appropriate. And that's why I think, well, I'm glad to see, you know, Minister Goodell has... Um, issued the press release with uh, what describes uh, some of these changes, which are very similar to what you and I have been discussing over the past couple of weeks. That's a good thing. Uh, But you know what? When you're dealing with the Correctional Service of Canada, I want to see the fine print. Not a press release. 
I want to see the amendments to the legislation or the regulations or the policy, because that's how we're going to ensure that there's real accountability. Yeah, it's it's really horrific that these things happen, and they happen repeatedly. And we have to remember as well, when it comes to a court case or when it comes to a parole hearing, the uh, the victim's impact statement, which is the victim's or the victim's family's only way of expressing to the court and to the government the agony in, that they experience and have experienced and will continue to experience. It's the only way that they can do it. Those victims' impact statements are made available to the offender Correct. prior to the hearing, and the offender has to sign off on the victims' impact statement. And I know that uh, at certain times, the parole board, I believe it's the parole board, could be CSC, but I think it's the parole board, have told the victims that their impact statement was too long, so either shorten it or we'll shorten it for you. Yeah, it's and, and you know, people forget um, it was not that long ago that victims were not even allowed to attend parole hearings. And then when they got the right to attend, they weren't allowed to speak. I remember attending a uh, parole hearing on behalf of a victim's family, and I, I think I was the first person that actually did that. And the lawyer for the accused killer uh, was objecting to my presence because she mistakenly thought I was a... The, the crime had happened in Alberta, and she mistakenly thought that I was the Alberta prosecutor, and I wasn't. And then she was saying, oh, yes, I shouldn't be allowed in the room. And I said, I wasn't the prosecutor. And the parole board <laughs> guy goes, you're not allowed to speak. And I said, but that's wrong. You know, we've, we actually have come a long way. Um, and, and that's also something that I think, uh, you know, uh, needs to be remembered. Um, I remember when the victim impact statements were legislation was first introduced, and I was still a prosecutor, and I had a, you know, something of a reputation of uh, standing up for victims. And I remember a, a victim's family asking me one day in court, um, do I need to submit a victim impact statement? And I paused for a second, and I said, well, actually, if I'm doing my job, I don't think you need to. Yeah. Because that yeah. was the view, that is the historical view that the Crown represents the public interest, which includes the interests of the individuals who have been victimized by the crime. And we've moved away from that, I think, in some ways, which just simply stresses the importance of victims having that inf- the right information and having a right to the information, not a discretion, a right to the information, plus having a voice at the uh, proceedings themselves. And again, I stress, not a veto, but a voice, because that will, I think, add a level of accountability, in my experience. And the people that are considering what to do may just realize, you know, uh, oh, someone's going to potentially know about this. Yeah. I, I will never forget when I first found out that uh, victim's impact statements go to the, quote, offender first. And I was speaking, you know this case very well, Michelle Edwards, who was murdered by George Lovey. Yeah. And uh, Donnie Edwards, the former goaltender yeah. for the Buffalo Sabres and for Team Canada, and his wife, Tannis, were in touch with me, and they were on this program. And uh, Donnie pointed out that their victim's impact statement was going to go to George Lovey, and he would uh, he would peruse it at his leisure. And he would have legal representation as well, and they would then decide whether they were satisfied with it or not. And if they if, if Lovey wasn't satisfied with it, then well, you have to change it. This is just uh, not it's not he can make an objection to it. He doesn't have an absolute veto over it, and the the principle behind that, of course, is that it is 
you know, potentially uh, evidence that is being used against the individual. So uh, there is a, uh, an obligation on disclosure. Well, then call it something else. Uh, it, it is factually disclosure of the information that's going yeah, to be You know what I'm saying, then? Don't call it a victim's impact statement. If it's yeah. a victim's impact statement, then let it be the victim's impact statement. And if, um, if it's going to be something else, then call know, it something there's else. There's even rules in the legislation as well, too. And I think appropriately um, that the, uh, the body has the right to determine uh, if, the, in effect, the, uh, the presence of the individuals or the people making statements is going to be uh, contrary to the process itself. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, that people are going to get out of control or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I think it's okay to have those kinds of general uh, provisions because that is a, uh, you know, something I don't know that I've ever even actually ever heard of. Um, so in other words, it's the, the body's ability to maintain decorum. But you can't stress enough the importance of these people getting having a legal right to the information and having a legal right to a voice. It not only uh, is a sign of respect for them, but it's also a an accountability and public safety protection for the rest of us. Yep, absolutely. And uh, in, in the in the Edwards case, it was uh, Michelle Edwards' mother and father that George Lovey murdered. Yeah. And uh, he is still, I believe he's still in prison. But um, you never know, because we're all just... Well, we're non-convicted individuals living in the community. Well, look at, as I say, look at this Randall Hopley case. Exactly. I mean, uh, that's the one people will probably remember it from yep. years ago because yep. it was such a high-profile case. Yep. That guy should never have been on the streets. He was a career criminal child molester. He was on bail. He got charged with new offenses. He was released on bail. He got charged with a new offense. Nobody did anything. And now, as it turns out, and I did some digging around a little bit on this, He's been released because he was declared a long-term offender. Oh, and by the way, he was given extra credit for the time that he was denied bail because he committed all these new crimes while on bail. It's ridiculous, okay? And because he was declared a long-term offender, he served his entire sentence, okay? You know how rare that is. Right. And um, then he's now subject to a 10-year supervision order. But at the time... The Crown, quite properly, asked for him to be designated as a dangerous offender, which would have meant that he had an indefinite sentence, which uh, he was not eligible to apply for parole for seven years. But the judge at the time decided that actually there wasn't sufficient evidence to decide that he was dangerous. Really? Guess what? You know, now, like five years later, six years later, Correctional Service of Canada decided he was too dangerous to ever release, and so now he's stuck in a... Uh, a community facility somewhere in Vancouver, and for reasons they've never explained, uh, they don't have electronic monitoring on them, so it's up to the Vancouver police who just issued a public statement warning people that this guy is now in their community. You know what I'm thinking of when you're talking about this? Uh, Joseph Fredericks. Yeah, yeah. Joseph Fredericks, who was uh, declared and and, uh, assessed psychologically, uh, homicidal pedophile who enjoyed murdering children more than he enjoyed uh, enjoyed torturing children more than he enjoyed murdering them. That was the report. He was uh, he was imprisoned, and the psychologist, psychiatrist, during the trial had said that he should never be released um, un- unless the this doctor was contacted first. So the parole board yeah. called the you know the story called the doctor's office. He was out. He was on vacation, and his uh, his his assistant told the uh, parole board representative that you know the doctor's not around. 
but they felt that they'd done their due diligence yeah, because they called the office the and they sprang the guy. Yeah. And then they had no supervision, and he abducted uh, Christopher Stevenson. So. Well, you know, Roy, that is another example uh, of the that case being used, and again, thanks to the uh, the Stevenson family and... Uh, uh, the the lawyer uh, that they had, uh, Tim Danson, Tim Danson did a great yeah. job as well, too. And I know you were involved in it. Yeah. Um, essentially exposing this, there was an inquest into uh, how uh, Christopher died. And that is where all of the preventive peace bonds came from, these long-term offender uh, supervision orders. That's where it came from. We actually made systemic improvements by looking you know, at the case to see, okay, what needs to be done. That's the case in the McClintock case. I just want to see the fine print about it, and I think as well, too, in the uh, the case that I was uh, just mentioning, this guy Randall Hopley, we need to do that kind of systemic review as well, too. Yeah, and without Not you... Not just to point fingers, but to learn lessons. And without you, we would still be laboring under the misapprehension the McClintock was not going to be eligible for a parole opportunity for yeah. another 16 years, yeah. but you found out a few weeks ago that it was six years. So. Yeah, it was on your show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about the uh, Canada Border Services Agency uh, yes. committing to expedited deportations. deportations. What does that mean? Scott Newark will talk to us about that when we come back. Back to Scott Newark in the minutes we have left. So CBSA, Canada Border Services Agency, says it is going to expedite, that may be my word, not theirs, deportations. What's this about? Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, it was uh, released through a leak that, by I'm sure, remarkable coincidence, the CBC happened to get that said that there was an internal policy that CBSA was going to uh, intended to increase significantly the number of persons a year that were actually removed from Canada. It's one thing if you're ordered removed; that's quite different than actually being re- removed. And they were seek- what they were looking for was to get it up to around 10,000 people a year, which is uh, almost a 25 to 35 percent increase in the current number of uh, removals. And as you and I have discussed before, and I've certainly written about for a while, a big part of the problem, in fact, a major part of the problem here, is the inefficiency of our system, the uh, repeated appeals, the... Uh, multiple uh, exemptions and exceptions, and people can just drag this out forever. Uh, and also, uh, people, uh, we have unfortunately a history uh, of people who've been ordered removed who then just don't show up when they're supposed to show up. The Auditor General, the last report, I believe, was back in 2011, and there was 44,000 outstanding arrest warrants for people who'd been ordered removed. Hang on a second, 44,000, that's it. That's not just a number we can slide by. Wow. Like, so, I mean, I, this obviously, I think, has a political aspect to it. it look at it. It's a welcome development. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's some real questions to it because, again, gee whiz, what a coincidence. A couple of days later, the immigration minister, Ahmad Hussein, introduces the new immigration targets, which, as you, um, you may know, like significantly increase the number of people yeah. that uh, we're going to bring into the country. Right. And uh, I... The ever sort of cynical, uh, ever suspicious prosecutor in me kind of looks at this and goes, is this like just to distract attention? Because... Uh, and I, only, I only have a few seconds, Scott. Yeah, yeah. The bottom line is we have a system that is dysfunctional and the system itself needs to be fixed. And you want to make sure that we're actually deporting the criminals and the security 
uh, people who are inadmissible right. as opposed to the low-hanging fruit of overstaying uh, visas. So go to Frontline on uh, Frontline Online, and you can see Scott's piece. Canada Border Services Agency says it will substantially increase deportations. Let's keep an eye on what actually happens. Yes. Frontline Online. Mr. Newark, always a pleasure. Thank you for the time, Scott. All right, sir. See you. Bye-bye. All the best. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 